This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. An all-pet day today on Creature Comforts. The doors to our pet hospital are wide open. We're ready to welcome your pet questions from the big to the small. Do you have a cat or dog at home? Maybe both. Or you might have a question about an exotic pet like a rabbit, snake, or ferret. Don't hesitate to join the conversation with your phone call or email. And if you've had any wildlife experiences that you want to share with us, we'd like to hear those. So join the conversation with a phone call. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. You can email animals at mpbonline.org. Here's a reminder. If you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday morning, it repeats Saturday mornings at 6. So good morning. Let's uh, start with you, Libby. What are you seeing uh, in your yard uh, these days? Good morning. Well, I've been enjoying listening to our chorus frogs and our leopard frogs, and we've even been making recordings of them, Paul made recordings and sent to our grandkids, just needing to share the event. We've got lots of goldfinches. Um, I've been watching a yellow-bellied sapsucker on our tulip poplar tree, making those little punctuation marks he um makes tiny little holes so precisely in a row right along um the tulip poplar and then uh he gets to enjoy the sap that runs out and uh evidently a lot of other insects and birds get to enjoy that sap too and i wanted to mention a little bit you know um a couple weeks ago we were talking to Joe McGee on air about animals in winter and um, had a, a good time talking about that. And that led to maybe a little short discussion about the different kinds of dormancy that animals use as a survival strategy when the weather's really bad. And uh, since then, I've had um, correspondence with several of our listeners who really had more questions about that. So I thought maybe I would address a little bit of that today. All right, go ahead. You know, we had talked about the fact that uh, warm-blooded mammals hibernate in in the winter, but usually in Mississippi, we don't see very much true hibernation, maybe maybe none even, because uh, we get those warm spells and animals get up and feed and particularly go to find water but in very cold places hibernation is a you know a survival technique that's everybody's studied and learned about and um, I mentioned that um, our cold-blooded ectotherm animals you know reptiles and amphibians particularly I think we were talking about turtles with him mm-hmm. that uh, they will find a place to burrow down in mud or uh, you know maybe in a, a bunch of leaf matter. And uh, I couldn't think of the name. And it's brumation is what we call it when it's cold-blooded. So it's very similar to hibernation. They're, um, gosh, they're, uh, of course, they get really inactive. Their body temperature drops. Uh, the heart rate, metabolic rate, respiration, all that kind of stuff is greatly decreased. 
And uh, one big difference, when mammals get ready to go in hibernation, they are voracious eaters. They're storing up food for that hibernation time, or if they're even if they're just uh, going into a lighter kind of dormancy, like many of our animals do here in Mississippi, they'll still almost gorge, you know, to get plenty of food, and then they digest because they've got a warm body. Even though their body temperature falls, it doesn't fall so low that they can't digest that food. But it's just the opposite with cold-blooded animals. So the reptiles and amphibians, in fact, would be in trouble if they got too cold right after they ate. And people that have pets, I know we're, we were familiar with that. I used to keep snakes for pets. And uh, they need to stay warm or they can't digest that food in their body. So they start not eating before they brumate and uh, they'll decrease their eating a lot and then go into that dormancy that we call brumation for them. And then the word estivate we've used online several times, and that works for warm-blooded or cold-blooded animals or insects, any, you know, anything that needs a break during hot, dry weather. And that's another time that um, animals are stressed, you know, almost to the point of death. It's particularly bad for something like an amphibian that's going to breathe through his skin. So anyway, that just kind of covers some of that dormancy and some of the things that are going on around us. Uh, particularly, you know, we wonder where the insects go. They Some die in the winter. In fact, a lot of invertebrates, that's their strategy is to leave their eggs and die when it gets too cold, but um, many um, kinds of insects are around us and they're, um, they're in dormant stages and they're waiting out the uh, winter until spring comes when they emerge. You know, we've talked about uh, the queens and bees and wasps and uh, all the, the hive animals. That female queen will overwinter in a dormant stage and then emerge when it gets warm enough and then she um, uh, holds in her body the um, the uh, fertilized eggs so she can start laying a new hive and, and emerge that way. So that's their strategy for staying. But anyway, lots going on in the woods in the winter, even when we don't uh, maybe notice those animals at all. Uh, you know, uh, producer Java Chapman found something that relates to what you were talking about, uh, Libby, and this was uh, from last week, but I think it still is uh, pertinent. Uh, Yahoo uh-huh. News reports that Florida's recent bout of cold weather is causing stunned iguanas to lose their grip and fall out of trees. Since they're cold-blooded, their bodies can go dormant when exposed to temperatures less than 45 degrees. Uh, so when the, b- the body goes dormant, the creature can lose control of its grip and drop from trees and bushes. So people were seeing it was basically raining iguanas, I guess, in some of the colder parts of Florida. And obviously, uh, they're not dead, so the the, uh, the advice was to be cautious when you approach them. But I thought, uh, interesting, that fit right in with what you were just telling us about. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's an invasive species in, yeah. in um, yeah. parts of Florida. So people may not be as worried about that. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, yeah. That's, Kevin, you know, I guess they, that's... They, don't, they don't necessarily die. However, I'm sure that a lot of people do eat iguanas, so that's the reason they call them chicken of the tree. Uh, <laughs> and they, and they, that's probably a good time to collect them. But in, in Central America, it's a delicacy, and uh, they, they are eaten uh, 
quite a bit there. Hmm. That's interesting. Are I bet got, that's not happening in Florida, though, do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe well, uh, we don't know. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, we got a lot to do this morning. I've got some emails to get to. I found a list of the 10 types of dogs that are most likely to beg for food. We might could go through some of those <laughs> if we have a chance. Uh, but uh, let's start off on the phone lines. Susie's called in from Fairhope, Alabama this morning. Susie, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Uh, Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Go ahead. Okay, I have a cat. Uh, it's a boy. She, he came to me, and we thought it was a girl, so I called her, named her a girl, called her a girl, and I know that he is a boy, but she's a she to me. My question is, uh, he'll, she will be a year old in April, and I'm feeling guilty leaving her alone all the time when I go to work. I'm thinking of getting another cat. I presume kitten to keep her company, but I'm really frightened that what if they don't like each other and how big a deal is it? She is an inside cat, so can you help me with this? Sure. Great question because it is one of those things we have to think about. Now, you said the cat is about a year old, I believe? Yes. Yes, I think Correct, yeah. What's his disposition like? Was it grown when you when it came to you? Or, <laughs> no, I got her uh, as a kitten. She came to me in April, so she was, uh, I don't know, six weeks old or so. Okay, and I've got to understand. She's a nice cat. You know, I mean, she still right. bites at me a little bit, but she sleeps with me, sleeps on me, and, and purrs and, and all. So, yes. There's a, there's a good chance if you introduce them, uh, you know, not all at once, like in a small area, but give the kitten, the new kitten, I, I would say, opportunity to kind of uh, acclimate, if you will. But in most cases, the cats do uh, tolerate a new a new uh, addition. I rarely see where they just totally uh, would, you know, not like the kitten. But I would go sure. with the kitten rather than, rather than an adult cat because you really don't know uh, what that cat has been through. Right. And, uh, and I w- uh, often... Opposite sex, excuse me, I'm sorry, opposite sex or same sex? That's a good question. I, I would say in, in, in most cases, opposite sex might be the best, okay? okay. So you got to uh-huh. redefine, redefine the names and everything, but yeah. Uh, I understand we have a lot of uh, dogs and cats that unfortunately get uh, called by a different name or that would be gender, whatever, uh, but that's okay. That's not a bad problem. No, it's fine. My kitty yeah. doesn't know the difference, so that's fine. There, there you go. That's exactly that's exactly right. And you know, most cats, in my opinion, respond quite well to kitty, here kitty, this sort of thing, right. as opposed to having to say, we have one called Teddy Lee, uh, and and then another cat named Jingles, and Jingles meets me at the back door every day, just like a dog would. And uh, but I think they know their names, but Kitty is always universal. <laughs> anyway. Certainly, I answer the most anything. One last question, <laughs> I think. Yes. Uh, do I need to get two litter boxes? I assume if I'm separating them in the beginning, and is that for weeks or a week? Um, well, the rule of thumb for litter boxes, we've said this on the show many times, is one litter box per cat plus one. Now, I realize that's more litter boxes than most people want to uh, have, 
but definitely two litter boxes would be in order, okay? Would that be permanent or just during the month of introduction, or do you know? I would I would say it probably should be permanent. A lot of cats, once a litter box gets sold, even with urine, they don't want to go in it, so they'll, they'll go somewhere else. And I do believe it's good practice to have an extra litter box. So I think two would be okay. You don't have okay. to put it, you know, out in public, so to speak, but just make sure that the cat knows where it is, and I think it'll be fine. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you. I just don't want my kitty, my current kitty, to be unhappy if they're depressed. Right. So. I think okay. I think another cat would would be great. Thank you. All right, Susie, appreciate your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Time for our first break of the hour. When we get back, uh, we'll be looking for your pet questions for Dr. Troy Major. Also, Libby's here to talk about recent brushes with nature, encounters with wildlife that you've had. Call with questions and comments. The number's 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. Email animals at mpbonline.org. We'll be back with more, so stay tuned. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. We're looking for your pet questions today and talking about your brushes with wildlife, encounters with nature, as it were. Uh, If you want to join the conversation with question or comment, the phone number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. Email animals at mpbonline.org. Back to the phone lines in just a minute, but I did want to kind of go through this list I found online. Again, it was the... The uh, uh, breeds of dogs most likely to beg for food. So from first uh, to last on the list, it's Labradors, Pugs, Golden Retrievers, Welsh Corgis, Beagles, Norwegian Elkhounds, Great Pyrenees, Bull Terriers, Dachshunds, and Rottweilers. So if you've had one of those and uh, would like to share what you think, whether they were food beggars or not, let us know. I know that our family had a dachshund when I was growing up, and uh, they do that thing where they they raise up on their uh, hind legs and beg at the table. So he certainly uh, fit that description. Uh, Dr. Major, any thoughts on the dogs on that list first, and then how do we make sure that dogs don't beg for food at the table? Well, that's a great that's a great question. I I would say this that uh, in most cases it's more the people in the family that are <laughs> cause of this as opposed to the dogs. And uh, I would suggest that uh, if in fact you want to feed the dog from the table, just get some kibble, put it in a little bowl at the table. You, know, you can take a snack off of it if you want to, but you could give give the dog his snack and make it something he likes, but not people food. It's just, once you get started, it's hard to stop, granted. And uh, I don't know about that list. Uh, You know, obviously labs are the most dominant breed, just about. There's more labs probably that we see. Uh, But I say it depends on the owner, and it depends on the dog, you know. So be careful with table food. Dr. Major, I can attest to what you're saying. It depends on the owner because my dog at our house, uh, she knows who to go to, and it's and it's not it's, it's not my wife. <laughs> and and I will say I will say this, uh, you know, men put up a hard front a lot of times, but 
I'd say the uh, men of the family would probably be the culprit in most cases of uh, excess feeding from the table. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have a friend of mine. He His family has several dogs. So when I go over there to eat dinner with them, it's like we're at the table and then there's a, a circle of <laughs> canines around there looking for a tidbit here and there. So let's. Uh, and of course, dogs, dog, dogs love, love to have like a one or two year old. Uh, eating as well because there's a lot of droppage uh, of food, <laughs> and they wait quite patiently and of course then then the child starts knowing it and starts feeding the <laughs> feeding the dog from from his high chair anyway it's an all pet an day on uh, creature comfort so let's go head back to the phone lines next let's off to oxford we go Juanita is on the line go ahead Juanita. you're on the air with us hi thank you for taking my call and also i like your show thank you um, i I would like to ask Dr. Major and also Ms. Libby, um, because she might know too, um, what is the law in New New Jersey, in um, Mississippi, regarding um, veterinarians being uh, empowered to put down a wild animal? Uh, Specifically, in this case, it was a raccoon that was near death, apparently, or had distemper, and no one was willing to... Um, put the animal down, and I'm wondering, does the law forbid it for regular veterinarians? Okay, Libby, answer first, and then I'll answer second, okay? Okay. Oh, I don't know. I don't think that there is anything forbidden. If a vet decides that an animal is in bad shape, as far as I know, but again, I guess I better defer back to Troy. I've never been asked that question, and that's something I'll have to look into. Okay. I have, and I've had, and I've had to do that uh, in several instances over the years, and I think it's a mercy thing in that case. Uh, you're not taking the life of a healthy wild animal, and right. let's, let's say something that's been hit by a car or shot and is suffering. Yes, I would say that very definitely a veterinarian can take care of that. Okay, okay. so they are under so whatever. Um, and professional says, oh, no, it's illegal for us to do it. They are mistaken. My thinking of this, again, it goes back to Emergency. your, you know, veterinarians take a, a similar to a Hippocratic Oath, and you're trying to uh, prevent suffering. And I, yeah. unless there's a specific law to that effect, I, I would say that uh, maybe I broke the law, but the animal okay. needed to be put to sleep. Uh, right. We had one case. One case where uh, two otters, river otters, were brought in, and very protected species, I suspect, but both of them had been shot. One of them was dead. The other one was dying, and yes, I put it to sleep rather than let it suffer. So Good for you. That's, that's my thing. Okay. 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 Thank you so, so much, Dr. Major and Miss Libby. All right, Juanita, good to hear from you. And I would say if you find yourself in that type of situation, that uh, contact uh, the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks, and, and they would certainly have some expertise to add to that situation as well. Staying on the phone yeah. lines, next off to Osaka, our friend Kathleen has called in. Good morning, Kathleen. Hi, guys. Listen, I, I'm having an ongoing problem with those hogs. They're big. They've been hitting things in the yard. Will they come after my rabbit in the cage? Because they're about to Kathleen, I'm going to say that they could, I don't know how substantial the cage is, but uh, they're capable of uprooting and turning it over and certainly 
uh, it's been shown that uh, the wild they, hogs predate on small animals and birds. Yeah. And I would say that, uh, that that could be a problem. Libby? Well, I I had to start bringing her in last night, and there's a, there's another problem. Uh, I can't find anybody. I called Wildlife Fisheries, and they said, no, it's on private property. Well, I only find three. About 140 in a walk with a cane. I'm not ready to go up against that 200-plus-pound no. hog. The guy told Be me, well, get, up, get, get up high and make sure you shoot him in the head. I'm about to go, I can't climb a tree, much less steady the gun I got. At the same time, have, I'd be shooting myself. Have you talked to the uh, local extension service? The uh, extension that's, service? One, that's one thing I hadn't done. Yes, I would, I would talk to them. They do uh, have some advice and possibly can put you in touch with uh, somebody that can help you, okay? Oh, there's a lot. There's three acres here on the top of the hill in the last week and a half. I can't put my foot down in any area, three foot, that they haven't rooted up, and I'm having trouble they walking on it. Yes, yes. Try the extension okay. service and see, see what they can help you with, okay? Uh, Libby, these things are really uh, uh, quite a nuisance, and as we've talked about a couple of times on the air, these can be very destructive. Um, but yes. it, could Kathleen possibly go and get the sort of the commercial critter roundup? We've had the, a person on that's dealt with wildlife before, so I imagine if DWP can't do it because it's private property, maybe she could find someone in the business that does it. And, you know, that's what the Extension Service may know about. There may be a local uh, person that that is licensed to take out hogs for for other landowners. I'm sorry that the agency couldn't help her, but I, I imagine they're overwhelmed right now with requests about hogs. But, um, again, I'll, but, I'll ask some questions about that, too, and just see if there's any help that can be provided. We've got a, a, a hog, bi- a, a biologist from the agency that's going to come on the show in, I think, but it's it's going to be on into um, March before he can get here. And uh, he's going to talk to us about what they're doing for wild hogs. So I guess maybe we save up a bunch of questions for him, too. I know that doesn't help Kathleen in the short run, though. But I also think that her... Um, Anything you have outside that a hog wants, they're pretty much going to be able to get if they try hard enough. So I would I would be worried about your rabbit, too. Uh, Kathleen, the Department of Agriculture and Commerce has a wild hog control program, which I believe has a current period for online applications. That might not be much uh, additional help, and they might say the same thing because it's private land. Uh, but, uh, you know, it doesn't hurt to search for all these different uh, avenues. So the uh, Department of Agriculture and Commerce, the Wild Hog Control Program, you might uh, see uh, if you can get any help uh, through them. So appreciate your call. Uh, keep us up to date. We'd like to know how that uh, works out. We'll stay on the phone lines. Next, we've got Regina in Jackson. Regina, it's your turn. You're on the air. Go ahead. Yeah, I just want to know when is uh, what time should we start putting out the hummingbird feeders? Hmm. If you're really adventurous and you want to see if you can attract uh, one of our, it's it's fairly rare, but there are a few people around the state that I know of that are feeding hummingbirds right now, and um, I, I 
think uh, it's they're not our traditional or not our regularly seen hummingbirds, but uh, you know sometimes a bird gets off course and he's in a place that he is not familiar with and not used to being. And uh, so there are a few hummingbirds present around the state now that people are feeding, but that doesn't happen very often. I'm probably just going to wait until um, March to start putting mine out. And I I go online and kind of check out places where hummingbirds are starting to be seen. And, uh, you know, you can kind of get a pattern of them coming. Uh, there are a couple of websites you might go to. Just Google hummingbird information in the southeast and see what you can find. And when you find that they're coming close or if they've been, if people are starting to feed in Tennessee, then it's time to clean up the feeder and hang it out is the way I look at it. So that might might serve your purposes too. I'm going to mix up my own mixture, so uh, sugar and water, some uh, clean water uh, for my filter water and sugar. I can do my own and they'll be able to be, a, that's, that's good enough for them instead of that red stuff in the store. Yeah, you don't want the red stuff in the store. You want to mix your own and I just use regular tap water. They, you know, they well, say now that the water in the, the, is not the best. So I'm gonna use some. Uh, I got filtered water. <laughs> okay. Yeah. If you've got if you've got a lot of filtered water and you don't mind using it for your hummingbirds too, you can do that. They say now that the most important step in as far as a cleanliness factor of disease is keeping the feeder real clean. That it doesn't matter about boiling your water because the minute um, you know, they start drinking out of it, it's not going to be sterile anymore because their little mouths have some bacteria just like ours do. But mm-hmm. if you keep that feeder really clean and um, anytime you notice any mildew or, you know, anything growing on it, be sure and um, clean it up. Then that'll help keep your hummingbirds healthy. Is there a mixture of, like, so much water to... Oh, I guess a half a cup of sugar to so much water in there to make it sweet enough for them, you know. Yeah, I do uh, three cups of water and a cup of sugar. And I use um, warm tap water and dissolve the sugar in it, you know, mix it up good so that I see that it's all dissolved before I pour it into the feeder. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah, it's kind of cold out there now. I didn't think I know good and well you're not going to put it out there. It's too cold, but next month. Yeah. When next There's month? Not, the end of next month? There, mm-hmm. Yeah, there is a very low probability that you're going to get them right now. But in March, that's when I generally start feeding mine. Okay. Unless right. I hear that a, a close neighbor has got one and then I can't resist and I'll have it out there. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thank you. Appreciate your call, Regina. We're going to take another quick break. When we get back, we've got a caller on the line who says he's a hog hunter. So we'll get to Dan. Your call in just a minute, but we do need to take this break. Uh, You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, an all-pet day today. Back with more after this. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Each week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft 
and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing a doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. An all-pet day, so we're looking for your pet questions. To join the conversation, we do have some open phone lines. Call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email animals at mpbonline.org. Back to the phone lines we go. Uh, Dan has called in, and Dan, it says you are a hog hunter. Go ahead. Yes, I... I've got a problem in in Chula with hogs on our place, and we used to hunt them at night and just shoot them with infrared scopes, and it just didn't sit well with me. Um, so I started hunting them with hounds, and I generally you have to find people that are about thirty or younger. I'm sixty six. It's a blood sport like fox hunting because we 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 I use a nine inch Gurkha knife and I harvest the hog on foot. But it's uh, pretty exciting if you like hunting. And at 66, um, it's kind of a great new sport. But, but I just thought I'd tell her about that. Uh, and, and hogs will, yes, sir, y'all know this, they will tear up something and eat your pets, and they're, they're not very friendly. Uh, and they're dangerous for an older person that can't move. Uh, Dan, appreciate the call. That sounds like a good advice. So, if Kathleen, if you're still listening, uh, maybe, again, go online and see if there are some folks that would do this uh, uh, to help you uh, get rid of these hogs, because they are, as we've all said, they are really a major problem. Staying on the phone lines next, it's Mikey in Mobile. Good morning, Mikey. Good morning. i got food, food questions here um, for, for animals, and that includes us, right? <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Mr. Feral Human. We're at the top of food chain. Uh, right. Um, okay. Uh, if, uh, Dr. Troy, please tell me if I'm mistaken about any of these understandings. Citruses are not good for cats. Raisins, grapes, and onions are not good for dogs. And I've also heard that leeks are not good for dogs, but leeks are a member of the lily family. And recently I've heard that you should never give your dogs any potato skins except from boiled potatoes. I've never heard that before, and I'm wondering, is there something chemical in the boiled potato skin? I mean, when I, when I asked another friend about this, she said, well, why would you feed your dog potato skins? And she's thinking the appetizer at the local, you know, <laughs> hangout, right? right? And I went, I went, no, no, I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm just saying that when I cook, you know, when I microwave a potato for myself and I, you know, try not to eat it all, <laughs> I share it with my dogs. So that's, that's the first thing. And the other thing, should I go on or, or should I wait? You know, on the potato skins, they may not be very easily digested for some dogs. I know of no toxin that in a cooked potato that they would have. So maybe digestibility, especially if they're uh, sensitive, that would be my main thought. 
So yes, I'm lucky then. All right. Yeah. Yes, sir. All right. Now, now, as far as far as the wild hogs, um, uh, I've also heard that there's a possibility that you could not eat them. Initially, was the information that I got because um, of the trichinosis. Uh, possibility and that it was that would make it not good for human consumption but then i've also heard from uh other uh organizations like one called hunters for the hungry um so could y'all enlighten me please about that stuff right certainly the uh raw uh pork or i would not even feed raw pork to the dogs you know to the hounds but in my opinion, based on what I know, I'd say that well-cooked pork probably would be okay. But, uh, Libby, you may have something to share with that. But, yes, trichinosis is certainly a, a thing, and it's true with, uh, actually, domestic pork as well. It needs to be cooked. I have eaten wild hog that um, because I trusted friends that had, you know, that had harvested and, and served it. But I've also got friends that will not eat wild hogs. So I, I think that's a very individual uh, situation. But it's I, you know, ball, I, ball. yeah, but definitely I wouldn't use the raw meat for any of my animals. Yeah, I would think that if, if it were well cooked, that maybe it would be okay for your animals. But um, it's just, I don't, I've not had experience with it, except that I've eaten it when I trusted people that were serving it. Right. Libby, in uh, past experience, we've had a few dogs over the years that have had issues where they've been fed uh, the raw pork, so the wild, wild hog. So yeah, I think for I'd sure be, we could both I'd say no, no feeding the raw meat, right? Right. Yes, that's exactly right. All right, Mikey, thanks for your call. Let's uh, stay on the phone lines next. It's William calling in from Starkville. Good morning, William. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Uh, good morning. Uh, I, I never have said uh, to save time, never said thanks for taking my call, but I, I'm going to put in a plug. I hope that everybody who phones in <clears throat> contributes to uh, supporting public uh, radio. We uh, appreciate that. Three, thing, three things about hogs. Uh, first, uh, <clears throat> I wondered... There used to be, the, in fact, it was a registrar at Mississippi State University, used to be a, a great fox hunter. And, and two or three times, uh, 50, 40 years, 50 years ago, they had fox hunts here in Octibaha County. I've wondered why you, we couldn't turn, uh, turn that around and start a tradition of having hog hunts. Uh, they put horses and they had dogs and uh, they made uh, quite a uh, social function out of it. Um, I've often wondered if that wasn't worth trying to revive and to uh, pursue hogs. Uh, second thing, uh, I was uh, thinking of, uh, of dogs to chase hogs. I've often, I, and I had had a, uh, a greyhound from the racetrack one time. I wondered if this might not be a be a, a place where you could use old greyhounds or retired greyhounds from the track to uh, to tr- try and track down the hogs. Of course, they're, they're sight animals rather than smell, and you, that, that may be one reason why they wouldn't function quite as well or, or function at all. And the third comment I'll make quickly was that I had a, a good friend who was in animal science at the university. One of the things I pressed him on a number of times was, is there some way to figure out scientifically how to control hogs 
from the scientific end, he was a specialist in uh, in uh, large animal reproduction, uh, primarily cattle. But uh, I wondered whether or not there wasn't an avenue there to get scientists working on this problem with some way to uh, to uh, uh, to focus uh, some some uh, more natural or some more universal uh, uh, phenomenon, disease or something like that that might take out a wild hog. And I realize, of course, there's, <laughs> and it's not my choice, fortunately. You have to be careful it doesn't, uh, doesn't carry over and get into the domestic uh, animals. But Okay. Well, wait, before you go, what did what did he say? Was there any sort of research being done uh, to describe what you're talking about, sort of a, a scientific way of, of control? He he explored it and uh, and uh, knew uh, some of the uh, some of the problems, and I've kind of indicated it. The big one is uh, not not uh, having something that would, could carry over into the domestic population. Uh, another thing was uh, a poison, but. Uh, that was special to to hogs, but here again, you have to be careful that uh, uh, that it didn't get into the public. But but I don't uh, I don't know. All I know is that there was a definite uh, solution to the problem. But uh, I will keep pressing him because I still know him and still see him occasionally. So, all right. Yeah, um, Go ahead. Let I've me. been told that I've been told that any kind of a, a biological control like that would definitely be very dangerous for domestic hogs too so that and i know that there are groups of biologists doing research at um mississippi state and all around the country on this problem and it's it's not been something that they've had an easy solution to you know we've talked before when people rush in to do any kind of a a solution to an overpopulation of an, an animal that um that's fraught with danger. You know, Dennis talked to us a little bit about just bringing in carp and all the problems that they've caused because all the alternatives were not um, studied far enough. So I, I I do think that there are biologists looking into it, but I, I don't think anybody's come up with a silver bullet. Libby, you know that, uh, yes, there are uh, quite a few universities working on this problem. The real problem has to do with their uh, extreme ability to reproduce. Uh, they may have litters of uh, 10, 12 piglets and reproduce more than once a year, plus those piglets will rapidly grow. I, as I understood from our last conversation with the, the hog uh, specialist, is that they're, they're the largest biomass up and down, you know, the Pearl River and other places, and they tend to migrate. This is one of the problems with trying to get them. They'll go to where the food source is. They'll be there uh, for a little while, deplete the food source, and then move on. So uh, there's been some advances made with the actual capture, uh, some some capture pens that have worked real well. But again, that's expensive, and uh, you've got to have somebody taking care of it. But they actually have those that can be remote controlled now, where uh, uh, enclosure can be dropped over the pigs when they're um, eating uh, bait. But yes, it's a real problem, and it's probably more than a billion-dollar problem in the southeast. 
You know, uh, one thing William mentioned that harkens back to Dan's call, you know, with the idea of the fox hunt. So maybe, too, that another avenue of approach would be to sort of play up the idea of uh, the of, of hog hunts and uh, helping control the population that way. Yeah. And that is being done all over the state. Yeah. I would think that um, landowners' best solution right now are um, to use very skilled, knowledgeable hunters to help them with their problems. This is Creature Comforts. Time for the last break of the hour. It's all pet day. Still time for you to get in a question to Dr. Major. If you'd like to join the conversation with a question or a comment, call us. It's 1-877-MPB-RING. Our phone number is 1-877-672-7464. You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. We'll wrap things up after this last break. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. It's an all-pet day, uh, and we're going to get to our last few pet questions here in just a minute. But, Libby, I think you had an event that you wanted to tell us about. Oh, yeah. In fact, I've gotten information from listeners about several events. One tonight at 6 o'clock, 6 p.m. this evening, February the 10th at the Clinton Nature Center. And uh, Bradley Lewis is a biologist with the Corps of Engineers. And he's going to be talking about um, tracking gulf sturgeon. You know, we've talked about gulf sturgeon a couple of times on the radio show. And so that's tonight at the Clinton Nature Center. And there's a lot going on as far as Arbor Day, our official Arbor Day in the state. is come is um, Actually, I guess that's tomorrow, the 11th, February the 11th. And uh, there's an event at the Natural Science Museum. And let's see, um, there's going to be, there'll be plants available, but evidently in limited quantities, so you need to go ahead and show up uh, tomorrow morning at the Natural Science Museum from 10 to 1230. And then there's also going to be a a plant sale at the Crosby Arboretum Saturday and another one at the Clinton Nature Center on Saturday, February the 12th. And those are both from 8 o'clock to 1 o'clock, and they're both uh, really have been very good native plant sales. And then the uh, Strawberry Plains is not going to do one right now, but they'll have a, a native plant sale later in the spring, and it's also very good. At the museum, there's also a special event on Saturday, about uh, virtual or augmented reality. You know, there's a new exhibit that's opened up at the Natural Science Museum, Game Changer, and it's about video games and the history of video games and how they're designed. There's a great big uh, large pixel wall where you can create uh, game characters and they explore 120 of the most influential video games that have been produced. But uh, this uh, event on Saturday is from 10 to 12.30 also, and it's a, a local group, uh, Lobaki, I think is how you pronounce the name of the, the group of people that they uh, 
make virtual reality experiences and they say you'll be able to virtually float through an animal cell or walk through an atom so it might be a good thing to stop by and see that on saturday and again that's yeah february the 11th 10 to 12 30 and uh the tonight's program on sturgeon is at six o'clock at the clinton nature center that uh, exhibit sounds right up my alley as someone who started playing Pong in the 1970s. I've always been a big fan of video games in Libby, so I think I might have to go by and check that one out. Oh, you must, because the information, in fact, it says it starts with Pong and works its way up to present-day video games. And uh, my friend and I are going to go to the Crosby Arboretum on Saturday, so that sounds like a fun as well. So let's uh, try to get a couple more calls in before the end of the hour, starting in Eupora. Rachel is on the line. Good morning, Rachel. Good morning. So I'm wondering uh, about hunting hogs with dogs. The dogs could very well be harmed and maybe even fatally. I don't think that's a good idea. Um, Yes, the dogs can certainly be injured, and I think it would have to be one of those well-trained dogs and a, a, a hunter that really knows what they're doing to go against wild hogs. Good point, Rachel. Thanks for the call. Let's uh, move on next. We've got uh, Robert in Gulfport. Go ahead, Robert. You're on the air with us. I have an American Bulldog Pitbull, and she has shakes every once in a while. Is that something I need to be concerned about, or is that typical of the breed? Again, what does she do? She tends to shiver or shake uh, uncontrollably. It is somewhat calm when I'll pet her or hold her. Okay. How long does that last when she does that? A um, couple of minutes or so. She'll just okay. uh, start shaking. Would you describe it as a seizure? I'm just trying to uh, visualize what's going on. Is it over it her whole body or just rear legs? It appears to be more along her uh, front quarters, her head, okay. upper body. Okay. So not a whole body shake. Okay. And it's an American Bulldog, is that correct? Yes, American Bulldog Pitbull. Okay. Have you been to your vet? I would suggest this is something you need to have checked. It could be the start of uh, seizure activity. Uh, there could be something else. It's not something that I would think it would be particular to the breed based on what you're telling me. So it really needs to be checked out. Okay. All right, Robert, uh, thank you. We've got William from Brandon. We're pressed for time. William, if you could be quick, got about a minute left. Yes, sir. So my question is about the best way to start sort of a barn cat. Do I need to go from a kitten? To, you know, can I just put a kitten outside and sort of have it develop as an outdoor cat? Or is it better to buy an adolescent cat or an older cat? I just want to, you know, I want to do what I want to raise the animal the way that I need to, but I also do want it to be a permanent outdoor cat. I don't have any any fences or enclosures, and I'm on about an acre. You'd have to be able to uh, take care of this cat, uh, maybe a special pen or something. If it's going to be a barn cat, uh, I would not uh, want to take a kitten and just turn it loose. So, first of all, food, and uh, certainly we have a lot of barn cats, cats that are barn cats, and they... They do quite well, but a kitten is going to be an issue from the standpoint of uh, predators and or other cats coming around. So you need to be able to protect that that kitten uh, uh, as best you can. Okay? 
All right, uh, William, thanks for the call. It sounds like a, an older cat might be better to kind of transition out to be a barn cat. My thought would be, though, once you get them out there, that's sort of the cat's natural thing to do. So I think it uh, should be successful, hopefully. Here's a reminder that if you ever see something when you're out and about and you don't know what it is, maybe a creature or uh, something along those lines, always uh, try to snap a photo of it with your smartphone and send it to animals at mpbonline.org, and we'll get our crack staff of creature detectives uh, on the case to see if we can't figure out what it is. That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funding provided in part by listeners. To hear today's show or a previous show, you can find them at mpbonline.org slash creaturecomforts. Our show was produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Liz Gill. So for Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield, I'm Kevin Farrell. Stay tuned because up next, it's autocorrect. And we'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio.